Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about that great company later. And today have I got a guest for you. I love doing this podcast. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure for the last, what, three years almost that I've been doing it. But what better to get than the man who created the first ever podcast. He's our guest today on the show. Let me give you a bit of a rundown. He's a well-known business talk radio personality and innovative strategies, a business nexus. We'll learn about what that is. Okay, an international speaker and is considered one of the premier experts in emerging business technologies, new media, and the digital economy. Goodness me, and he's a real connector. I could tell you an awful lot about him in this intro right now, but I'm gonna cue the music and get stuck into this fantastic interview. Let's go. Okay, so Ken, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. I really appreciate the, the kind of like the originator of the podcast being here on the show. How does it feel to be like the first person that ever did a podcast? Well, it wasn't called a podcast back then. What was it right? called? Okay, so let's, let's go back in time, 1996. Um, broadband was still dial-up. Okay, do you remember that? Yeah, very yeah, much so. Right. Yeah. You hear the sound, the modem yeah. going on. And the problem was sound being audio took a long time because it, back then it was still big chunks of data. So how do you take data and store it so it wasn't buffering on the other side? So that's what I initially created, was a way to make sound sound good over a dial-up. That's the first. Then I, after that, I figured, well, wait a second. Why not learn to stream that type of content? So I worked with a company back then called Real Audio. I'm not sure if you remember them, AudioNet. No, mm. no. It became Broadcast.com. Okay. Mark Cuban. Mark, Mark Cuban, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. So working with all of them, I became the first streamer and streaming, then I learned to download, store, and then you could play it on a mobile device. It doesn't sound as sexy as podcast because there was no pod back then. Yeah. You know? So where, where was it then being published? Where were people consuming it? Well, you can do it on, back then, AudioNet or on my own platform. I had 20 shows back then that I found different people in different parts of the world that would broadcast stuff from Australia, South Africa, Hong Kong, Canada, and they aggregated everything on my platform, which was called T-Talk. So Tech Talk by T-Talk. So I was the originator of all this content, which was today would be podcasts under a different name, which was just audio. And then uh, I became um, one of the initial partners at AudioNet, which became broadcast.com. So I worked with Mark Cuban right at the very beginning. That's nuts when you think about it, 1996. Even if you'd have said to me 2006, I would have gone, wow. But 96, I remember I was living in Brazil. I was just starting to use my AOL.com email address and stuff. Really? Yeah. You still have it? No. No, okay. It's <laughs> the old school you are. Yeah, I, I think the idea was the internet was so new, everything was fair. You know, because it was kind of what the imagination created, but the problem is, is what technology could deliver. We couldn't do a lot because AOL was probably considered the best graphics out there, if you remember, right? <laughs> it was horrible. So, but even e-commerce didn't exist back then. You couldn't buy anything back then. So when we look at what did we do is we either looked at imagery, which took a long time for it to download, mm -hmm. or we hoped to hear something. And I wanted to be on the hear something and then eventually the see something side of things. Got so that, that's where it was. And then after that, everything just exploded. And I think because when Mark came out with AudioNet and became broadcast.com and then Yahoo bought him. And I went to Yahoo. I was part of that team. Yahoo really was setting the pace for where things were going to go. Because it had leadership that saw way outside the box. You know, back then it was... 
Yahoo was the dominant monster. It was, there was no Google back then. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I'm talking like ancient Egyptian type of information <laughs> right now, right? Because it's so far back. Yeah. You used a mouse, you didn't have a keypad. Yeah. Uh, you had dial up, which was that sound. And if somebody called, if you had call waiting, it would actually knock out your phone and you have to redial in. It's just, I mean, people are listening now that are under 30, they have no idea what we're talking about. It makes me laugh, you know, sometimes when I hear people thinking about how unrealistic all this future stuff is going to be. But yet, when we were back there in 1996, we couldn't, I couldn't even imagine being sat here doing what we're doing right now. You know, we were just talking about devices, this latest road mic and all this kind of stuff. And how technology really has accelerated so quickly that it's gone, it's gone to a stage where it's difficult to keep up. But yet, even with that, and that, that proof, that evidence, that history, that track record, we've still got people going, yeah, but that won't happen, you know? Self-driving cars, come on, that's not that Well, you know, drones in the air that's gonna deliver our food. Oh, come on, that's a little bit extreme. You still get that mentality, even though there's all that evidence demonstrating that tech can move in that speed. Uh, that speed. Mm. When you look back over the years, what kind of stuff did that really surprised you, really made you go, wow, now that is mega cool? I think the wearable devices, I know you're not an, an, an Apple kind of guy, right? No. No, you're not. You're Windows. I'm an Android guy. Android. No, I'm an Apple computer. Apple but, computer, right. Yeah. I think wearables are where things are going. I, I never phantom the idea of wearables becoming the dominant thing, where you wear your watch, but all this data is attached to you. you know? Not just your movements, but phone calls. I, I get tons of phone calls on my watch. I don't even have my phone on me. But imagine now the idea of wearables not being on us, but around us. Here you go. Ready for this one? And I can't wait for this to happen. Smart toilets. Okay, <laughs> you laugh. But imagine when you go to the bathroom, it tells you you're, you don't have enough vitamin C or you might have some type of disease. Everything is tracked based upon what's coming out of you. And it's all the time. So imagine now that toilet kind of helps you out and what you should be taking more of. Or if you are sick, where you should go. I think smart toilets now. So it's going to measure your stools? Everything. Everything. And they're starting to come out with this. We're seeing smart toilet devices. But the idea of not wearables, but the whole IoT, Internet of Things being mm -hmm. everywhere, I'm excited about that. Do you have a, you know, you have a uh, Range Rover, right? <laughs> I have a Tesla. So um, Teslas are amazing because not the car, but the idea. Have you been in a Tesla? Yes. So you realize that when you hit a bump in a Tesla, it remembers where that bump in the road was. So when you go over near that bump again, it adjusts the suspension of the car before hitting that bump. But it also alerts all the other Teslas in the world of that bump. So what they've done Amazing. is they've created this network of everything that's on the road. So the internet of things not on our watch anymore, but everything around us is really gonna change the way we interact with the planet. I'm excited about that. So it's not in our computers anymore, it's about everywhere. I like that, a lot of people hate that because they think their privacy's totally hmm. gone, and I don't care. I mean, I, I, that doesn't you live in Dubai, they've got cameras everywhere. <laughs> that, that, well, it's right? the second most police state in the world, so they say. Singapore one? Monaco. Monaco? Yeah, Monaco's the most police state in the world. Interesting. Okay, so when you, can, when you consider all of those evolutions along the way, and you get excited about that. Let's, let's talk about podcasting for people that are sitting here right now saying, why would I have a podcast? Uh, What's in it for me? You know, yeah. It seems like it takes a lot of time, and people contact me and they're like, you spend so much time producing this kind of stuff, Spence. What's the benefit? Okay, 
What, when, you, when you started out, obviously you were learning about the benefits, but what do you think are the big takeaways of owning podcasts? So you want me to give, give away some big secrets right now, right? Uh, all day, okay. yeah. Come okay, on, let's kid. do this. So I came from a, a radio background. Mm -hmm. So I started in the traditional terrestrial broadcast radio space. So I had a radio show that was in Chicago, uh, which was the number three market in America. Very, very popular, strong market. And what I realized was being in a radio studio, it wasn't about the audience. It was about who was in the studio with me. So if I could have an Arnold Schwarzenegger sit down with me, and I get to spend time with him, I might be able to pick up the phone six months later going, hey, Arnold, it's Ken, remember me interviewing you? Yeah, all right, all of a sudden there's a connection. So the power of a podcast as well as a radio show is the connection with that person you're spending time with. So like what you're doing right now, right? Yeah. And you know the magic formula, which I told you, right? Yeah. What is what? The magic formula, it's not about, it's about the, the audience is the customer. Well, not just that. It's just, <coughs> what is your favorite word? Oh, my name. Your name. Yeah. You know, if I say Spencer 14 to 17 times, you have a different type of connection with me, which you've actually seen yourself too, right? Yeah. When you say that person's name over and over again, there's almost a fondness that's mm -hmm. being created. It's just, it's just a bit more intimate. It is. Yeah, that's what, that's what it feels. When my guests say my name over and over, I just feel, feel like they know me a bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyone that's out there listening, you put this podcast together I mean, great, you have an audience. That's awesome. But you also create a relationship with that person that you're sitting across from. Mm -hmm. So anyone out there that wants to create a podcast going, no one's going to listen to me. Who cares? As long as the person you're interviewing is listening to you, then you've created that relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea. I think you, you isolate. That's why the Zoom thing, it's not as intimate as this. You really want to be across the table and, and, and look into each other's eyes and, and see you know, that, that, that reaction that happens. So a podcast is about the connection. And as long as you're doing that, you have a successful podcast. You do, because you've made, how many podcasts do you think you've done? 165. Roughly, right? Yeah. So 165 people, probably you could pick up the phone on every one of them and say it's Spencer, mm -hmm. and they automatically say, oh, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I might even have somebody that you should interview, because you've forged that relationship with them. I interviewed a famous mountaineer on Zoom uh, called Nims Dye, who's a world record holder. And recently I climbed Mount Elbrus, and while I was on the mountain, I bumped into him. Wow. And it was like, Nims! And he's like, Spencer, how the hell are you? And I'm sat there on a mountain in the middle of Russia, okay? I've got Nims Dye, the guy that's the world record holder that I've had on Zoom. I've never sat with him face to face, and now I'm sitting having a cup of tea with him. That's amazing, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you some things that I've learned. So I've interviewed about 25,000 people. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> I've been doing this a long time, so 25,000. And I can tell you the, the top performers, the ones that are at the, the, you know, the, the Elon Musk, the Jim Carrey's, the Oprah's that I've interviewed, they've all shared commonalities amongst all of them. It's basically five things, okay? So high performers, and you probably do the same thing. Okay, okay you wanna hear them? Yeah, I'm ready, ready for this, okay. bring it. Okay, the first one is they are all able to delay gratification. Okay. Right? So they go, you know what? I'm not going to charge this on my credit card because I'm going to pay for this now for the next whatever. They push off gratification to later on. Mm -hmm. That's the first. Number two, they all have morning and evening routines. So they wake up. They might meditate. They might uh, not touch the device for a while where they kind of concentrate what's going to happen throughout the day. At night, they have a gratitude journal. Mm -hmm. You know, you do a lot of these woo-woo things, mm -hmm. but they work. Mm -hmm. Okay? Number three, they are all practicing some type of health either working out, certain type of dietary structures, they all look at health as being really, really critical. Mm -hmm. Number four, 
they educate over entertaining themselves. So they're not playing video games, they're not binge watching movies, they're watching documentaries or they're yeah. reading books. They uh, are not uh, just sitting down doing mindless stuff. They're mm -hmm. constantly feeding their brain with knowledge. Got it. And the fifth one, which I thought was fascinating, and Elon was the first to really show me this was, and he said it, he says, because I, I, I couldn't make the connection until he said it. He said, I feel uncommon, meaning I am not a common person. Not that I'm better than everybody else. I'm different. Mm -hmm. They all felt like they had some different trait that made them unique. And because of that, none of them would settle for common stuff. You know, they wouldn't do what the common person Was does. that an indescribable trait? I couldn't figure it out until he said it. He said, I'm uncommon. And all of a sudden, I, I thought about all the interviews I've done, and I looked at them. They were all uncommon individuals. And, and Eli would always say, uncommon, uncommon, uncommon. That was a term he would use. So those are the five traits that I've discovered over sitting back and interviewing people. And it's fascinating. Do you do all those? Are you uncommon? That's a really difficult question to answer. But you remember when you put me on the spot when we first met and you said, what makes you cool? I was like, holy mother of God, I've got no idea what makes me cool, you know? Yeah, but like, you do. You have in, people listening, please, watching. <laughs> You're an insanely cool dude. You are. <laughs> but there's a reason why I do this. You know, bringing out the cool factor in somebody because they generally forget about it. It just sits there in the back. And the minute you came up with the cool things, you actually went, yeah. And then you started diving deeper into those things that make you uncommon from other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that cool factor, speed to cool is what I call it. How fast does it take to get to your cool factor? Can the uncommon things be eccentric, eclectic? Can there be anything? Is there, is there like a, a, a common pattern you see of what is uncommon? We met a person the other day that she owns crocodiles in her house. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Because it's so unique, right? Yeah. I think every one of us has done something, positive or negative, that separates us from everybody else to make us uncommon. It's just we forget about it because we live with it every day. Mm -hmm. And the minute you start to see that I am an original, I am unique, it helps you move forward saying, I'm not part of the masses anymore. I can do something different. And going back to the podcast, I think when you're sitting across from someone and you start to learn about them, you start to see those original things that pop out that are so important where that person's neglected to see that in themselves. Like you, you literally could not figure out what makes you cool. And all of a sudden you started dropping them like atomic bombs. Like, oh my God, another one, another one. You're an amazing, you're a hero with all those things you do. Thank you. That's really kind of you to say so. When I'm, when I'm interviewing people, I can tell people that understand how to, uh, how to talk, Mm. Um, how to like to portray themselves, present themselves, just exactly like you can right now. I can see the ones that, that may be extremely successful in business, but really nervous around being in front of the camera and um, building a little bit of a relationship with them before, before we put the cameras on is something that you need to do. I look at them though when they're successful and what I notice is how normal some of them are, even though they're really successful. It's almost like they get into an environment like this where they, they're, they're uncomfortable in that place and all of a sudden it takes away, almost like when we go hiking, we could go hiking like we did the other day with millionaires and billionaires, okay, and, 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 and everything between, yeah? But it's a leveler. As soon as you're up there, we're all equal. Nobody's any Don't different. you love that? Oh, massively, yeah. I love yeah. that. Really So important. going back to speed to cool, uh, and I'm not sure if you want to touch on it later on, but I, I run a, a very interesting group. Yes, I'm going to talk and, about and it. And yeah. when we get together physically, 
all the new people that come to this group, and there might be every Saturday about 25 to 30 of them, I put them all on a stage and I make them give us their speed to cool. And many of them fail the first shot. So you're sitting up there with, you know, rock stars and in industries. And I think I told you the one time I had Lou Frigno come up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great story. Tell right. that. So Lou Frigno gets up and I go, what's your speed to cool? And most people know he's, he's basically deaf. So he talks like that, right? And I go, so what's your speed to cool? And he goes, well, my, I work with my son. I go, that's not cool. Uh, I've, I've been married to the same woman for 22 years. I go, that's great, but that's not cool. What makes you cool? And he could not come up with this cool factor. And all of a sudden, you started to see him sweat and perspire. And he started getting pit stains, sweat stains under his shirt. I go, Lou, come on. You've got to come up with it. And it's like, it's obvious. He goes, well, I don't know. I'm the Hulk. And then the, everybody <laughs> cheered. And you're the original Hulk. But he forgot about it. And it was almost like he made this passage to realize that it is what makes him cool right away. And everything else kind of falls in line. You know, he's Mr. Universe and all those things. Once we know that cool factor, yeah, we're great. But all of a sudden he came right back down to earth and he became everybody else's equal. And it's such an awarding, it's, it's a reward to be in that equal situation. Your hikes is about equaling everybody out. And it really is. Mm -hmm. The irony is actually you're the one who's going faster than all of us. You got, it kind of sucks actually hiking with you because you're thinking, oh, there's this old guy. He's going to go lead the hike even though I'm older than you. And you are literally a gazelle on these hikes. Yeah, okay. Don't go on a hike with sponsors. It's embarrassing. <laughs> so, to me, since I met you, so, so I turned up at our friend's house, and you're there, you're eating breakfast or whatever it is. I meet you, I meet your other half, and you ask me what makes me cool within 30 seconds. For the next hour, you mess with my head. Okay, Tell, telling me stuff, teaching me stuff that I'd never heard before, it really blows my mind and I'm sitting there going, who the hell is this guy, you know? Around my, around my buddy's house and who's this guy? You are many things, but you're a master networker really, aren't you? Well, I hate the word networking. Okay, use another word for it. Connecting. You're a master connector. And there's a reason why I use that. Uh, I would say a super connector. Networking, I think, is very shallow. It's giving somebody your name card, you look, in your mind you go, all right, I'm gonna file this person into this category and this is where I'm going to use them in the future. Connecting is what we did. I learned about your passions, I learned about your kids, I learned about why you're here, some of your failures. And all of a sudden in my mind is, where do I fit this guy in my life? How does he become um, essential for me as a friend and I think when we start to connect, we start to see those areas where people fit into your life, not your business. Business comes secondary. So I like to connect with people. I like to find out where they are in their, their spiritual journey or their professional or, you know, where, where their path is. Because I think all of us could change the course of somebody by just a little turn without them knowing it. Did I tell you about Antonio Marcuccio? No, tell me. Antonio Marcuccio lived... Uh, uh, in the 1800s, he developed this device in 1855 that basically was this box. And this box had these long tubes that went into different rooms. And if you went to one tube and you would sing, it would go through the tube to this box and way on the other side of the room, you could hear the person sing. And that's all the device did. If you talked, the circuit would break. Okay, completely useless basically. You know, early karaoke without the music. So Antonio Marcucci looked at this thing going, this is a waste of time, and he mothballed it, scrapped it. 
15 years later, someone else came by and did the exact same design, had the same result. Sing on one side, hear it on the other side, talked, and it broke. And he looked at the entire thing and he took one screw and turned it a quarter of a turn more. That guy's name was Alexander Graham Bell. Mm. Okay? He turned it a quarter of a turn to literally change the world. And I think every one of us has that quarter of a turn in us to change the path we're going on to make us greater. But it takes all of us to come together and really learn about one another to find out where that quarter of a turn is. And that's why I think connecting is so much more important than networking. And did, did that, was that something that you learned early on or was it something that was natural to you or was it no, something that- I'm not cool like you. I'm being serious. Oh, shut up. No, I'm, I'm being serious. Folks, you're, you're, you're listening and watching this. Kenny's mega cool. You're, you're a cool dude. You're probably a great networker. I'm the guy in the corner that does not know how to connect with people or network with people. I, I'm actually somewhat of an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. It seems like I am. But when I'm in a room and I see all these amazing people, I kind of like, I don't know what to do. I get nervous. You know, I walk in your room here, you got these two guys. One guy's got arms like Lou Ferrigno, right? The other guy's got a, <laughs> a smile that just closed. I'm not cool like these guys. So I would not know how to network. I wouldn't know how to connect with them. So that's, that's what my first problem was. I didn't have that confidence. Uh -huh. You have confidence plus. You glow the minute you walk in a room. So you're probably a great networker. I hate networking. But you're probably a great networker. Because you can tell, just let's be honest right now. How easy is it for you to turn on the, I can small talk with you for a while, enough to where you can't see that I'm hating it, but enough to where- I, I can do that. That's, can do that's that. no problem with I me. Can't. I don't like it, but I can do yeah, it. I hate it. I can't. Okay. Yeah. Understood. So I just want, I want to know who you are. I care. Because in my mind, I collect people. My job, my inventory is people. So then I go, oh, Spencer, all right, I know how I can hook him up with. And if those two come together and make something great, I don't need to make money out of it. I just want to change the world out of it. And to me, that's what my reward is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. That's very powerful as you say that. When you, when, you, when you think about the people that you've connected with over the years, think, think about people that have blown you away, that you're just like, what epic human beings these people are. Take the, take the famous, the Elon Musk and the, and the Oprahs out of the equation. I mean, it, funny enough, every time I talk to you, you're like, oh, did you hear about this guy that was talking the other day? Did you hear about this guy? You're so excited and so enthusiastic about it. But surely there are people that you've connected with in your life that have really made a, a change in direction or helped you achieve things that you hadn't achieved before. My favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life. Did you ever see it? Yep. Do you remember the premise? No. The premise was this person wishes he was never born because it was really stressful during this time in the movie. And so he was about to commit suicide. And this angel named Clarence said, let me show you what the world would be like if you didn't exist. And people weren't married because they never met. People didn't live in that town because he never connected with them. And it was, it was almost a black and white world to where it was a colorized world when he was there. And I feel that regardless of where my place in the world is, I know that I brought couples together they have kids, and those kids are having kids. I know that I was the originator of that. Now, am I making money on those things? No, because that's not what drives me. It's to see people do things together that are great. That's my driver. But I know that if I'm not around, 
lots of things would never have happened that are great. So I can't put my finger on one thing. Mm -hmm. Tons of things. And what I do is I have this group. May I, can I say metal? Yeah, of course you can, yeah. So um, when I moved to Los Angeles, it's kind of a, a seedy town, you know? There's a lot of what I call $30,000 millionaires, meaning they all pretend they have all the money in the world, but they don't. So they're imposters, they're posers. Mm -hmm. And when I went to LA, I realized that I can't associate with people that are fakes. How do I find people that are real? Mm -hmm. So I started a, a small group of just people that I met that I felt like they were accountable to one another. Mm -hmm. Started on a Saturday, started with three, by the end of the month, it was 20. By the end of three months, it was 150. By the end of the year, it was 300 people. We would get together every single Saturday for a breakfast. I took out restaurants. And I realized that, unfortunately, I still got some of those $30,000 millionaires inside the group. Yeah. So I had to create levels of validation and ways for people to prove. And I also realized that a lot of the wives and girlfriends did not like their husbands or boyfriends going to a group that was co-ed. So all of a sudden, a lot of men couldn't attend on a Saturday morning. And my, my partner at the time, she goes, why don't you just make it a men's group? Man, I just sounds so bad making it. I'm, I, it's like, I don't hate, I mean, I love women. Make it a men's group. Made it, made it a men's group and the thing just blew up. And then the wives started saying, oh, I want my guy to be there because they knew they'd be safe. And all of a sudden, men became vulnerable. They started talking about the issues that they were having when it came to their, their masculinity, when it came to what's going on with them as they age, or they're going through a divorce or financial ruins. Guys felt more open to talk about it amongst one another. And I started to realize that men became better as husbands and as fathers and as sons, as partners, when they started hanging out with other great men that were vulnerable. And that became metal, media, entertainment, technology, artist leaders. Now, we used to meet before COVID, 300 guys every single Saturday, very LA focused. Now, we meet on Zoom, which you've come to a few of them. It's quality guys. Mm -hmm. And the speakers that come every Saturday, there's generally five, I've never paid for a speaker. Mm -hmm. And these are people that get 60, some get 100,000 US dollars to speak at an event. They all come for free because they want to connect with that community. So, and what I always ask them later on is, how do we help you now? You know, how do we help you with your movie that you're doing? How do we help you with your car company you're making? How do we help you with your insurance company? It doesn't matter because we're in it to help one another make a better community. Men being vulnerable. That for me is growing up in the environment that I grew up in, something that I didn't see an awful lot of. Now I felt vulnerable, you know, I felt, felt, um, lost and hopeless and alone and stuff like that. But finding a group of guys, even, even my good buddies, that you would go and share that kind of stuff with, um, for me in my life has been something very challenging, which leads you instinctively just to keep it in yeah. or to go counseling or therapist or whatever it may be. How did you get the guys, or, or how did the guys naturally start to really open up? What, what kind of things triggered? Because you have new members coming into this group. So they, they essentially can watch other experienced members be open, so it can be a catalyst. But how, do you, how did you start people just being open? Was it, were you the one that put your hands up and went? You ready? Go on. I've known you for two weeks. Yeah. 
I already love you. How do you feel about me saying that to you? Strange. Right. Because women will say it, mm -hmm. and they're okay saying that. Mm -hmm. The minute a man says it to another man, they go, oh my gosh, you know, what do I do? <laughs> right? Do I say I love you back? Yeah. How do I connect with that? And I think the first thing is to be open about what your feelings are towards somebody and be free with it. So if you've never noticed, even in my community, I tell the guys, I love you. Not with a dude or man or yo at the end. It's I love you. And I think guys are taken back on, all right, how, how do I feel what he's saying? And I think the vulnerability starts there. Is first emotional connection. Second is being accountable to one another. If I say I'll do it, I better do it, right? I better follow through. Also, we have to make sure that we share contacts. I am so excited, and I told you this earlier, I can't wait to connect you with this one guy because you guys are going to do incredible things that get together and I can see it. So we have to share contacts. We can't steal credit where credit is due. So if, Spencer, you're making this incredible documentary, and let's just say uh, I hook you up with Hulu or something like that. You go, yeah, Ken was the one who got me that contract with Hulu. You have to share the credit mm -hmm. where people actually give credit. And the one that's really important that I think we have to realize is we have to pay people being cash for their services. When you're in a community of things, I don't want free things from you, but everyone for some reason thinks, oh, we're buds. Let's, you know, give me, give me that stuff for free. It's a wrong way of doing it. So I always look at these ways first. So when men are in an environment where there's parameters around it, they become more relaxed. We're, men are dogs. If you ever see a really happy dog, it's actually in a fenced area. It knows where its parameters are. Uh, great trained dogs are ones that have parameters. And once us men know we have parameters, whatever they are, we become better men. I know people are thinking, oh, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. That's what, you know, kids that are in gangs, they have no parameters and they go wild and mm -hmm. they break every rule out there. That's dangerous. So I create safe parameters for us men to be within, and you meet great men in that process. Mm -hmm. Heck, you were on a call last night with the guy who created Atari and Chuck E. Cheese, yeah. and Steve Jobs, he, Steve was, worked for him. Steve called him his mentor. That guy's completely accessible to you now. Mm -hmm. So great men need parameters. Everyone's very humble in the group as well, though. You wouldn't know. What's yeah, the, yeah, you know what's that? The, yeah, that, that was his name, Prince Stas. Oh, Stash, yeah. You know, I, you're like, go check him out. I Googled him and I found out that he, he spent his time hanging out with I mean, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones and comes from royalty. I don't know where he's from. Is he, is he Austrian? Or? No, he's British. Pop this. Wherever you go and you say that you're part of that group, watch how walls go down. Like Akon's part of the group. I know a bunch of guys that go to uh, Con and they're, they're at some party and Akon's throwing it out. They go, hey, I'm from the metal group. And Akon, come on in. Things just change. And it's because of the accountability to one another. Now, I suggest everyone should create a community like this. And the way I started this was I found a restaurant. Well, let me step back. So I was working for my dad. My dad does some similar things to what you're doing. And if anyone knows when you're in financial services, Generally, what you do when you start is you use your friends and family to bring them in to sell them the services, financial services. Problem is, all my friends and family were my dad's clients because he did the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had no resource pool to go after. So what I did is 
I found a breakfast diner where I lived that all I needed to do is buy a cup of coffee and I could sit at this big table for the price of a cup of coffee for hours. So I went to that restaurant, I go, what is your idle time? When, when does nobody show up? They go, oh, it's Tuesdays around seven o'clock in the morning. I go, great. Can I bring 10 people to this table at seven o'clock on Tuesdays? They go, no problem. So I found 10 people that were not in competition to one another. I had a car dealership, an attorney, a dentist, um, a, someone owned the beauty salon. And I go, let's just get together for breakfast on a Tuesday and just talk about where our issues are in business. And I realized that if I had an agenda, if I curated the right people, had a consistent location, consistent time, they show up. I started that in 1992. That group that gets together, there's 300 people to this day that get together at that little diner from 1992. No way. So I, I created the <laughs> premise that people need a place to have conversation. That's why we're Rotary Clubs. That's why mm -hmm. we have a lot of these. But everyone can create it. It's easy. You just have to have those principles. Consistent location, consistent time, an agenda, and curate people. The right people. People will show up. So anyone that's listening, create your own group. Because all of a sudden, you have powers and masses. Mm. You can make a difference. Yeah. So your hiking groups, in a lot of ways, consistent time, not consistent place, but it's going to be a hike, right? You curate the people. You don't invite bad people. No. And when they all come, you introduce them. You, you, the agenda is to get to the other side. That's the idea. But that's why people show up. You've created your own little community. And, and I really suggest people need to do that to help one another out. Mm. That's how you connect. Yeah, because the relationships with those people in that community are strong. And, there's, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd all help each other if we could, just naturally. So just think about it. How many things have you failed at that you learned later on how to solve that you know you can teach somebody new in business like that mm -hmm. and protect them from them doing it? Yeah, loads, 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 yeah, loads. Right? But the problem is you don't have access to those people. And I'm not saying you particularly. But imagine if someone else created a community like that where they would share knowledge back and forth. You would only allow that community to grow more and more and more. I just wish people would do this. What kind of, what kind of men, if people are listening to this right now saying, hey, that metal thing sounds quite interesting. What kind of, if you could take the, the, the top three, four, five characteristics that you're looking for in the, in the ideal person that's part of that community, what are they? Uh, I'm going to use the term heart-centered, mm -hmm. okay? When I say it's about the we, not the I. Somebody that knows they can do better than what they're just doing by themselves. You're a very heart-centered guy. You really are, okay? You, you, you do things that are heart-centered. That's the first. Second, um, no pariahs. You know, I, I, I have a hard time with a lot of service-based people because all they do is they're looking for that next prospect to turn into a client and never, ever really dive into connecting with them. Mm -hmm. I need curious people. Curious people that want to explore more than what they're seeing in front of them. Mm -hmm. You know, the other night you were on a call where we were talking about the next iteration of the internet. The next internet, whatever that is. And then another person came in and talked about the creator's economy and how you can make more on YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, another person, you, you, you fell asleep because you're, you're an early riser or early sleeper, uh, is a biohacker, somebody that literally hacks his body and lived to be 150 years old. They're all radically different topics, but the curious mind would want to know about mm -hmm. it, right? And then the last is, I'm always looking for a, and I, I, I'm right now focusing on men, 
that are not satisfied for where they're at. Because when you get too comfortable, comfort or I don't want comfortable people. I want people that are uncomfortable. Are you uncomfortable ever? Yeah, for sure, a lot of the time. In Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, have you, have you read the book? No. So Viktor Frankl was um, in the concentration camps in the Second World War, and his wife was in another concentration camp. He was a psychologist. And while he was in there, he spent his time analysing people and trying to work out who would survive and who would die. Mm. And in, in summary to the book, Man's Search for Meaning, he said the biggest problem that we have is that we look out. We're looking outwards rather than looking inwards. Yeah. And, and actually, the more you look out, the further away you go from your finding your meaning and your purpose. So the book educates you on how. It's a very powerful book, and the book educates you on how to find your meaning. A, a lot of people, the service-based people you just said, you know, it's a tool to get more business, which to me, um, I find really frustrating because it's like oh, everyone's looking for the next deal and everyone's looking. And that, that puts people off, doesn't it? Absolutely. It puts people off being part of stuff like that. It's like... Don't want to be involved in that. Someone's going to try selling me stuff. So it's endemic inside that space. It seems like, right? Yeah. You know, the real estate market in the yeah. finance market. It's like, all right, I'm going to find a way for you to benefit me, mm -hmm. not for me to benefit you. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the switch. This is where happen. this is when you call it networking. There's something that I, I I refer to as prospecting versus networking. To me, prospecting is I go and join a group to try and find some clients. Mm -hmm. Networking is I go and join a group to try and meet people that are like-minded that I can build relationships with. And well, that's to. positive. Mm -hmm. That would be connecting then. Mm -hmm. Prospecting yeah. is a little more shallow. Okay, my last question today is being British and growing up and living overseas in many different countries, mm -hmm. um, we touched upon something when we were climbing the other day about the fact that I'm sat here in my house in Dubai with an American. And you spend a lot of time overseas. You've been in Bali for God knows how much time. That seems to be your second home or even maybe your first home um, nowadays. But we don't see... Americans travel. We don't see Americans go and live and work overseas like we do every other nationality or many other nationalities. Yeah, right. And there isn't the language barrier like maybe a Brazilian might have or a, or, or a Russian might have where they're in a country where that's not their, you know, their mother tongue works there. Why do you think it is that you've got a country that has created so much of the entrepreneurial space, so much of the technology space, so much, you know, it leads the world in banking with JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and on and on and on. Right. Why do you think it's so hard for Americans to get out there and see the world and see what the world can offer them? Comfort. Comfort. But I also think it's our educational system. Our educational system is not allowing uh, the kids to think more global. Uh, I think that television has really hindered the process. I think our media has caused the United States population to fear what's going on beyond their borders. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. And I think the idea of turning off to tuning in is really important. If we could turn off to tune into the rest of the world, it's great. Let me just tell you what I used to do with my kids. So when my kids uh, were uh, 10 years old and seven years old, I started out when my son was 10, every week, we pick one day of that week and we turn it into international day. We pick one country and that entire day we ate that food, we learned that language, the words in the language, we found a store that sold those products and we got on a map and we learned everything about that country. So over the course of a year, we've learned about 50 countries. Over awesome. the course of four years, we hit the entire world. Awesome. And it gets hard, you know, you're going to Benin, it's hard to find a <laughs> Benin restaurant, right? <laughs> yeah. But my kids now, my, my, my son, who's an American, lives in Northern Italy. 
My daughter, who turned 17, I think she's been to 20 countries already at 17 years old, right? I know my kids will outpace me and have a passport that thick because I did not allow the pressures of what the consumer, the typical consumer American consumes. Mm -hmm. I made sure they saw way beyond that. But I wish there were more parents like me in the States. They're not. You being British, how easy is it for you to go to France? How easy for you to go Ireland, Scotland, you could just drive there. And drive to France. Right. Well. America's not like that. You know, you only have two countries you go to is Mexico and Canada. And they're not really that much different than what America is other than languages. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about where you're from is you, you were raised to be everywhere else. Americans aren't. So it's, it's sad that you, know, you meet somebody like me and you go, wow, you've been all over the place. And it's so unusual. And it, it is. And I wish that would change. Yeah, me too. Me too, for sure. Now, you're here in Dubai. You were involved in Jitex, sorry. Jitex, yeah. And how did you get involved in that? Because that's a massive event here in the UAE. We had 100,000 people show up uh, in uh, this event in uh, 2021. We're already starting to plan next year's event, which is going to be even bigger. Uh, I'm a speaker. I speak all over the world. And I came to uh, a Jitex that I was invited to. And I literally went up to the, the manager. I go, you're doing this wrong. Let me show you how you can do it better. And they're always taken back because everyone thinks they're doing it the right way. And then I threw some ideas out. They go, we'd love for you to help us out with that. So I always will prove myself. And this year, we brought some incredible speakers from around the world. Next year, just as good. I'm already planning who these great speakers are. And I believe that Dubai, you've been here for 16 years, 17 yeah. years. This is a really unique city. And I'm not saying it because we're here. I'm going to tell you the truth. I believe that... If we look at the world over the last 2,000 years, there's always what's called the new Rome. So Rome was the center of mm -hmm. the entire universe at one point in time. And then something took it over. It was like Constantinople yeah. in the next Rome. And then it would have moved to Paris. And then it went to London. And then it went to New York. Then it went to San Francisco. I believe the last new Rome was Los Angeles. I really do believe that, okay? Because if you wanted to launch a book or you wanted to have some type of uh, power, you had to go to LA for a while. It's gone. I think Dubai is the new Rome because Dubai is what's called the pool city. It pulls in all this incredible talent because of the events, mm -hmm. because of the real estate, because of tourism. This is the new Rome and this is the right place to be right now. I don't know how long it would last that way. But you're in the right place, and I hope people from my country will see that. But boy, has it been marketed the wrong way. It really has. If you go to anyone uh, in North America and ask about the Middle East, Dubai, they'll say that women are treated bad. You know, it's, it, I, I'm going to get kidnapped. I mean, it's just crazy, the stuff they see because of Rambo movies and all that. Yeah. But the minute you're here, you realize that this is, this is a new paradise opportunity. And I hope uh, people like you will really open up the eyes to people in my part of the world to show them how great it is. Yeah, I appreciate point. being here. I really appreciate you taking some time to come and talk to me today. I know we've chatted on hillsides and chatted in people's living rooms, mm -hmm. but you um, you really impacted me when I first met you, and I want to thank you for that. That's sincerely. Point. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ken. That's why. When you consider the people that I've interviewed over the course of the last three years, some have been amazing, some have been kind of harrowing, and some have been intimidating. So many different experiences along the way. 
but you've got to agree with me, chatting to Ken for the last hour has been an absolute pleasure. The guy, since the moment I met him, has brought me interesting people. He's told me more about myself than anybody else has in the course of the last few years. And he's just a kind, warm and humble person. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Now, if you're listening to this on iTunes, then please give us a five-star rating. If you're listening to it on any other podcast platform, give us some love. Come on, because the more people that hear and see these episodes, the more reach it will get, which means more people will benefit from it too. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries, Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.